Hello, I'm Ben Harmon, the Director of Stills, a centre for photography based in Edinburgh and a registered charity. You're listening to a series of conversations with artists and photographers that we are in touch with to discuss and share their ideas during the time of the coronavirus lockdown. To learn more about Stills and to get involved or to support our work, please visit stills.org. Thanks for listening to Photography Down the Line. Hello, am I speaking to Alex Boyd? Hello, you are. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hi, Alex. Nice to have you on, on this podcast. Uh, how are you and, and where are you and what might I be interrupting at the moment? I'm good. Um, I'm down in Irvine Harbour on the Ayrshire coast and normally you'd be interrupting me sort of fighting this mountain of books in front of me. Um, <laughs> currently between two things, which is I'm doing a, a PhD on uh, photography and uh, I'm involved as a, as a sort of an art historian um, researcher on a huge project on the Isle of Arran. Yeah, um, I don't think I've I don't think I've talked to you about the Aaron project before. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's um, the um, on the Aaron community have been given funding for um, a new arts heritage trail, and as part of that, they're creating a new resource which is kind of looking at the history of um, artists who've gone to the island or who've lived on the island and made work. And it sort of ranges, you know, we've got everything from Victorian genre painters through to, um, yeah, like uh, contemporary uh, painters and makers right through to like, you know, Mesolithic, Neolithic, you know, uh, rock art. So it's, it's this huge, um, huge project, we've got about 600 artists so far. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. I've just really enjoyed kind of researching a lot of those artists and maybe uncovering a few that people don't really know about. Yeah, and and have you uncovered some photographers too? Is there? Um, so I know some of the kind of Victorian photographers and early twentieth century photographers were kind of touring around Scotland. Did they get to Aaron as well? Yeah, I mean, um, Aaron was very much kind of on yeah on the tourist map, as it were. Being so close to Glasgow, you had you know a lot of steamers going in there, and um, you have yeah just off the top of my head, um, you've got John Muir Wood, who was. Um, one of the early Calatite photographers. He went to Arran and created quite a large body of work there of the glens, valleys, and the villages. And uh, he even dragged his uh, plate camera up into the mountains of Arran as well. So we have some really interesting kind of early um, Calatite images, yeah, made from ridgelines and peaks, uh, which is, you know, quite exciting for me as someone who's fairly obsessed with mountain photography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and not only mountain photography, but um oh using older processes as well you've you've yeah um you have something in common there dragging <laughs> equipment up up mountains and so yeah on. i think Thinking of your, your project the point of the deliverance in particular which i've seen some images from yeah um i think i've uh i've had a kind of a long-standing interest in sort of how i think it has a lot to do with um how, how as scots we we view our identity and how that sort of has been created through through imagery in some ways. Um, and I've worked as a, a museum curator and just as a curator and I thought, you know, years ago, maybe I should learn a bit more how these people worked. And, you know, I went to a few workshops, you know, for like Calotype and Wet Plate Collodion. And then I just sort of got the bug and um, yeah, I went out and got all this heavy equipment and 
<laughs> yeah, this is my younger, kind of more masochistic days. Um, Travelled about a thousand, you know, miles around Ireland and Scotland. Been up peaks with this stuff. And yeah, just kind of understand a bit more about how these early photographers worked. And um, yeah, I've exhibited that stuff. Um, planning to bring out a book next year if the publishing industry doesn't collapse. <laughs> um, and just kind of maybe explore some of those things. But, you know, it's, it's been interesting working with that Victorian plate stuff because um, it's, it's been fascinating kind of, um, you know, learning how to do it hands-on in the field. And it kind of gives me a better understanding of what we have in our collections these days. But as a, as a photographer or an artist practitioner, um, you know, it's, I want to kind of go beyond that you know, just having straight Claudian images without, say, um, some kind of uh, input, be that, you know, manipulation of the images. I, I showed some manipulated uh, Claudian images at the RSA a few years ago, or incorporating text, you know, um, I just feel, you know, it's 2020, you don't want to pretend to be a, you know, a plate photographer today, you know? Sure. But, you, yeah, sure, sure. Do you think, um, do you think in a way that's what, that's what some of the early, the early sort of pioneers, I'm thinking of sort of, of the American West as well, mm. some of the, the sort of epic uh, landscape photography that we know sort of from the history of photography. Do you think they too were, were trying to deliver a message as well? Yeah, I think, I think of people like Carlton Watkins, you know, heading out West and, you know, making these, you know, huge albumin prints. Um, yeah, um, you know, places like, you know, Yosemite and so on. Um, or people like Alexander Gardner, you know, out there. And um, yeah, I think they were using the newest technology at the time, you know, there wasn't the same kind of romance, which is around a lot of this stuff, which there is today. Sure. And I think you know, they were very much, you know, documentary photographers of their time. Um, and I think that sometimes that's forgotten, you know, that they were kind of at the leading edge of what they were doing. Um, so for me, you know, this, this project, um, I've been kind of going to a lot of places which, you know, weren't heavily photographed, you know, the kind of Gaeltacht or Gueltacht areas of Ireland and um, photographing, you know, like Mayo, um, which, is, which was uh, kind of a very, you know, uh, a Gaelic speaking area in Ireland, uh, which wasn't heavily photographed, you know, first time round. Um, and photographing kind of contemporary issues there um, using this old process, um, such as the Corb gas controversy, you know. Mm. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to kind of use this old process to kind of visit some of these places. And yeah, I'll be interested to see how people react to the work when it comes out. It's quite different, I think, from the kind of Claudian stuff I've shared before. Yeah. And as well as, would you call your, you, you seem so much more than this, but would you call yourself a landscape photographer? Would you describe yourself as a landscape photographer? That's interesting. Um, I really enjoyed listening to Mary Law's um, interview. And I think, you know, it's, I think she has the same kind of, um, maybe it's a struggle with, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but kind of a struggle with the word landscape photographer. Yeah. But um, I think because when people think of landscape photographer, they think of, um, you know, uh, Colin Pryor, you know, landscape um, calendars and postcards <laughs> and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm just using photography to kind of interrogate kind of narratives in the landscape. And yeah, I guess that would make me a landscape photographer. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I should make peace with it. <laughs> I wonder too, these days we're so much more aware, luckily, of the connections, you know, of how respectful we need to be of the, the natural world, rural landscapes and so on, and actually how interlinked they are with 
city life, you know, as part mm. of the planet we live on. And I wonder if by describing someone as a landscape photographer, we're encouraging almost a sort of separation that the landscape is out there, it's other, and it's not really connected to, say, someone who lives in a city. For sure. I mean, I think we have that in Scotland in a quite a major way, um, especially with kind of a sort of central belt um, take on the Highlands, for example, that it's this kind of separated other. You know, a lot of um, a lot of lowland ideas get projected onto the Highlands, for example, and, you know, and even just in life in general, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, again, McFarland's quite a good nature writer who kind of looks at the interconnectedness of, you know, our everyday lives um, with landscape and environment and yeah, I think this this othering that, that occurs is something that as photographers, you know, we need to kind of kind of challenge, kind of to, to kind of broach that gap between perception and reality. Sure, sure. It reminds me a bit of of um, well, I, I, quite often with these podcasts, I'm kind of joining dots in my head. But you you mentioned Robert McFarlane there, mm-hmm. and and Mary Law, and obviously Mary's on Lewis. You've mm-hmm. um, you did quite a quite a big project on Lewis and Harris um that was published last year is that right the isle of rust yeah yeah um yeah it's funny because um when mcfarlane was on lewis um he walked out into the moors uh with a woman called Anne campbell i think that's in the book the old ways and yeah that that woman Anne campbell was my next door neighbor (laughs) Um, when i lived in bragger which is this um, village on the west side of lewis and um i took that walk out with her as well for a terribly named Creative Scotland project called Sexy Pete. And uh, <laughs> we, we walked out to her family's shillings, which are out on the moor. And um, I recount all this in the book. And, um, you know, the weather just turned on us. And, you know, you're only, you're only five or six miles from the nearest road, but the effort of walking across a peat, a peat moor, um, you feel like you're, you know, you're so far from anything. And, um, yeah, it's quite it's quite an experience. Um, but yes, I spent I spent two years living on Lewis, um, working for Onlanter, um, and this book was sort of um, it's sort of a series of um, it's kind of like a, a photographic sketchbook, kind of an aid memoir. And um, I've always been drawn to kind of um, you know things in the landscape which don't tend to be photographed so much. Um, in terms of this book, I wanted to kind of avoid ruin porn. You know, this endless uh, images of ruined crofts and um, this idea that the Highlands is completely, you know, abandoned of people. And um, many years ago, I, I um, came across the writings of uh, Jonathan Meads, as well as, you know, being a huge fan of his television programs. And he wrote and uh, was involved in a program called Dial of Rust, which is, he went around Lewis and Harris and kind of celebrated this kind of non-national trust landscape where you know, detritus is just kind of everywhere, you know, um, and this kind of, um, this sort of uh, evidence of hu- everyday human life, you know, which is, you know, is just out there, you know, it's, uh, it's, and it's layered there in the land as well. And that kind of really fascinated me um, as a photographer because, uh, yeah, you know, sure, there's pictures of ruined tractors uh, <laughs> and all that sort of thing in that book. But there's also, you know, there's images of, um, you know, ruined um, or extant, you know, remains of um, Cold War listening stations or, you know, there's, uh, there's places there that Faye Godwin photographed, you know, Erdoic many years ago. Um, and there's also, you know, there's archaeological remains and it's, you know, it's an overused word now, but, you know, the book tries to be sort of a palimpsest. It's got, you know, these layerings of uh, different historical periods. And the idea was to kind of make it kind of a, um, for that book anyway, was to kind of make it 
a sort of counterpoint to a lot of the touristic books which are about Lewis and Harris mm. by showing you know horrible images of rusty cars piled up right next to um, you know beautiful beach scenes the, the idea for the book is to be almost alienating you know uh, what's the phrase Verfremdung's uh, effect I think Brecht said you know um, so when people read this book it's um, the images maybe are meant to be quite jarring um, so yeah that's that's how I sold it to the publisher anyway <laughs> I want to, want to bring out a book which uh, which is jarring <laughs> <laughs> and has has work from that book been exhibited as well you um, I had plans to exhibit it, um, but then this whole thing sort of hit. Um, and I'm sort of still playing sort of catch up um, with the birth of my daughter um, last year. Um, kind of all my energy really went into sort of um, looking after her and, and my wife. And um, yeah, I've kind of put that and sort of exhibiting that kind of work on hold at the moment. Yeah. Um, I've also got like another book coming out with the publisher, so it feels like I'm endlessly playing, playing catch up at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see um, where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously one of the reasons I'm speaking to you is because you would be exhibiting it stills at this point. Mm. Um, and we'll put some, some of the, the recent work on our website um, for people to see. Are there other projects that have been postponed or cancelled or you've already, yeah. you've already talked I mean, about quite a lot that you're you're working on yeah um well the exhibition at stills um is really to do and it's i guess it's kind of very timely in a way um my doc my doctorate and my kind of interest at the moment and for you know for the last 10 years has been on the arms trade mm. um and especially scotland's place within that and where i'm sitting from from here i can see the remains of the ardeer which um, is one of the largest undeveloped pieces of land in Scotland, um, or abandoned pieces of land. And it was um, it's about 500 hectares in size. And it's, um, it was the size of, sorry, it was the site of the um, world's largest munitions factory at one stage. Mm. And um, this, this factory, which was set up by Alfred Nobel, once employed you know, between 13 and 15,000 people, um, predominantly women actually. And I've been documenting that site, which is now mostly ruinous, kind of for the last decade. And, you know, images from that were meant to be in the exhibition. And um, it's been interesting, just in light of uh, what's going on in America just now, um, within the heart of that former munitions factory, there's a, there's a company called Kemring. And um, until last, till last year, they were exporting, you know, tear gas, um, you know, uh, and other crowd control measures um, to, yeah, China, Egypt, you know, and you kind of, you just sort of, you can start to see the links between, you know, um, what's happening here and what's happening globally. And obviously, you know, um, British exports were used, were being used uh, to control um, crowds in US cities mm -hmm. in the last couple of days. And, you know, yesterday I actually wrote quite a Quite a long email to my MP just you know asking for kind of tighter control on these sort of things mm. so aside from photographing that site um, I've been working across Scotland uh, documenting these um, you know munitions factories these um, production areas of weaponry but also um, the defense estate which is this huge I think it's between one and a half and two percent of all of Scottish land is used for the testing uh, and training of soldiers so I had this, um, had this big itinerary of, um, I'd worked with range commanders and I'd, you know, negotiated um, with uh, archaeologists and con conservationists to access these sites, to photograph them. And then, you know, lockdown happened. So 
um, I've got this huge body of work that needs to be shot and I'm just sort of <laughs> rearing to get out there to do it. <laughs> and is it, are these sites spread all over Scotland? I know that um, a lot of testings happened in the, the Hebrides and of course mm. St Kilda, uh, another place you've, you've made work on has a kind of long-standing MOD kind of presence. So yeah, I mean, I'm, my own background, um, I'm one of three brothers um, and I'm the only one who's, you know, not, not a soldier. <laughs> um, and um, my, you know, I grew up on military bases in Germany and the UK. So I've had this kind of long-standing interest and in kind of this link um, with, with the, um, with defense. And yeah, the, that St. Kilda book, um, there's a whole industry around St. Kilda, but not a lot of people talking about, you know, it's place testing weaponry. You know, it's, it's kind of a, um, it's a part of the Hebrides range where they're, you know, testing NATO or testing, you know, um, rockets and missiles. And it kind of is very jarring when you, when you think of it alongside the kind of romantic and tragic story of St. Kilda. You don't think of, you know, um, squaddies and scientists living and working there, you know, uh, monitoring uh, missiles as they come in. And as one last time I was actually on St. Kilda, there was a weapons test occurred. And um, yeah, I, I went out there a few times and just photographed a lot of that Cold War legacy that's on the island. And um, they're now landscaping it, they're getting rid of a lot of it. So yeah, that book, which only came out a couple of years ago, is now sort of a record of um, a lot of those places which are now gone. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. But yeah, like the, sorry, yeah? <laughs> yeah, no, but I was going to say, on the other hand, the National Trust still maintains some of the, the old dwellings is that right some of the old yeah dwellings. for sure i mean the mod and the national trust work together um to kind of keep access to the island you know there a landing craft arrives i think every week uh, with supplies and you know if it wasn't for the military um we wouldn't have that presence there so you know it's a, it's a complicated relationship and with that book st kilda the silent islands i tried to sort of look at that look at that relationship and I'm just, yeah, just thinking now, the last couple of books I've done have all been collaborations between me and like an archaeologist who writes about those kind of symbiotic and quite often problematic relationships. I think basically I'm a frustrated archaeologist. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting because one of your contributors to the Isle of Rust book, Dan Hicks, he has kind of combines a lot of those interests, doesn't he? His background is kind of archaeology and art history and yeah, I mean, Professor Dan Hicks is, um, he's in Oxford and, uh, you know, he, like myself, he was, uh, you know, a big fan of Jonathan Mead's writing. And I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm quite interested in sort of the tensions in the Hebrides between, you know, between um, modern and ancient archaeology. And, you know, there's this kind of narrative um, where the islands are presented in a certain romantic way, you know, which maybe doesn't reflect the truth. And, you know, that for him was, you know, fascinating. And, you know, we, we read about some of the things uh, we found on the island, you know, um, for example, there was um, East German, an upturned East German Trabant car mm. um, in a field. And then, you know, you've, you've got everything from that right through to, as I said, you know, military base, you know, ruins of military bases and standing stones. And you quite often don't get that full breadth, um, you know, kind of view of the island. Um, and I think he teased out a lot of those things in his, in his essay. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to work with him. Yeah, I think I could be wrong, but I think um, thinking back to what you're saying about the project that you hope to continue while you'll be traveling around to visiting all these various kind of locations and sites. Um, 
Am I right? Paul Strand was drawn particularly to the Uists because of the connection with the with the U.S. military, as a as a communist. I think he was interested. Does that ring any bells with you? Oh no, for sure. Yeah, um, I think he went there just before the base was built, or yeah, kind right. of, um, okay. when it was. But he was very aware, I think, of what was going on. Uh, I'm sure someone will correct me on that. But yeah, he, <laughs> yes. he's such a fascinating character because that book. Uh, Chiravarain, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Um, it's um, you know it's printed in East Germany as well, you know, which was uh, you know, quite an yeah quite an interesting uh, thing to do at that time, especially you know kind of uh, with Cold War tensions. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean to make that record um, of life on the islands just before you know this massive change before this um, before this um, mm. radar listening station was built is you know such an important thing. Right. And um, yeah, when I lived on the islands, it was, it was quite amusing because, you know, that book is so, you know, iconic. It's, it gives such a certain, it gives such a cer certain kind of um, narrative about life on the islands that, <clears throat> you know, it attracts photographers there in droves. And, you know, when I was at Atlanta, um, you'd get, you know, you know, a couple of inquiries, you know, every, every month or two from photographers saying, you know, I'm coming to the Hebrides and, you know, I'm following in the footsteps of uh, Paul Strand. You get a lot of these people, you know, turning up to photograph, you know, people who who had been in Strand's pictures as children, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it's, it's it's just fascinating to see the kind of wide ranging effect of that book in terms of perceptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, it was one of the. You, I'm sure you know, it was, it was one of the very first Stills exhibitions, uh, an exhibition of work from that series. I think in 1978, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, and then I think Atlanta it went up to Atlanta subsequently. That's uh, right. That's right. It's been great yeah. to see it on the islands. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Are you aware of? Um, I think I might have mentioned it to you before that Richard Mizrak, who American photographer, who we associate probably with recent work, you know, interest in the the sublime and kind of long exposures of um, Golden Gate Bridge and so on, uh -huh. did this this um, book project and exhibition called Bravo Two Zero. In at the end of the 1980s, um, the subtitle is "The Bombing of the American West." Um, it's a really amazing. I didn't see the exhibition, but I've got a copy of the book. But really incredible, where he's he's documenting a bomb, a U.S. Navy uh, bomb test site in Nevada, in the desert, which he claims they they began to use illegally because it's public land, um, and he sort of documents this site and. Um, but what's brilliant about it is at the end, he finishes the book with a, which he wrote with his wife, Miriam um, Misrak. Um, he ends with a sort of proposal for the site to be transformed um, into a kind of natural habitat and a, um, you know, a place where people can kind of um, come and admire, admire nature and, and these amazing mountains and, and so on in the site. That's what I'm, I'm really interested in that kind of idea because, um, uh, to kind of return to the the Ardeer site here, it's become completely overgrown, and as a result, it's become sort of a, a haven for wildlife because it's sort of it's on the kind of um, peripheries, it's on the outskirts. You know, it, there's no development there as such, and you have um, and these places which are you know these horrendous you know um, weapons have been tested and produced. You know, they they become these sort of yeah these kind of cradles of uh, of life, and now it's um, it's uh, yeah, I think it's got some of the 
you know, some very rare insect species. They found a new species of bee there, I think, but if I'm not incorrect. And yeah, I kind of think of these, um, you know, where, where they tested, you know, nuclear weapons or where, um, you know, people fear to tread. Um, they've kind of become havens for wildlife. And it's kind of the same, like another site is Cape Wrath, of course, you know, um, in, the, in Scotland, um, which kind of has a you know, similar kind of um, biodiversity. And that, that's what interests me as well is, you know, like you said, you know, these uh, places where they drop bombs, you know, they ironically now become, <laughs> you know, they're the complete opposite. That's right. Yeah. And Mizrak wanted to create America's first environmental memorial. The oh, wow. Bravo, the Bravo 20 National Park. I've got the book here. I'm just looking at it. She was, I mean, 30 oh. years ago. How, yeah. How interesting we're. Um, yeah, some some of these ideas aren't aren't necessarily new, but um, the the Ardir Peninsula is yeah. extraordinary. So Alfred Nobel had a direct connection to it, and, he, and I didn't realize he he later on in his life he established the Nobel Peace Prize. They think as a way of sort of um, you, you know making up for the fact that he'd 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 benefited so greatly from from dynamite yeah. weapons and so on. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of one of those. Um, I guess trying to assuage his guilt, perhaps, you know. And but yeah, he went there and you know said it was a, a God-forgiven place, you know, uh, nothing yeah. but sand dunes and um, west coast of Scotland weather. And if it wasn't for work, you know, he'd go mad. But yeah, he he was there and did set up um, the company there, which you know then became the British Dynamite Company. And again, as I said, you know, this colossal arms production, sorry, not arms. Um, um, munitions production facility and um, one of the things that you know other narratives which have kind of come out of that is I'm now working with unsurprisingly another archaeologist from uh, Birkbeck <laughs> in London and um, I've been going around the site and this will be you know if the exhibition does go ahead in future um, I found this kind of wonderful time capsule on the site which is during the second world war um, as I said all these women worked on the site and they all had these um, units which they worked in, which are now these kind of overgrown bunkers. And when you go into these units, of which there are many, um, they're covered in the graffiti, wartime graffiti of these women. <laughs> and this graffiti is everything from caricatures of their fellow workers to, you know, song lyrics um, to, you know, um, slander about perhaps, you know, lovers and so on. Um, and even phone numbers, you know, for the girls that work there. And it's sort of this amazing kind of record of, you know, of um, women's contributions during that time, which, you know, quite often we forget about, you know, the, the role of women during wartime. Um, so, yeah, it's been kind of, it's, you know, when I first went in there as a kid, um, it was kind of as a play, somewhere to play, you know, when you're, when you're young, you know, bunkers and, you know, abandoned train lines and abandoned power stations, you know, they're great, you know, but as you kind of get older, you start to see that these sites, you know, they, there's so much more than that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of missing around there in photography, uh, taking photographs there. <laughs> Is it difficult to get access? Do you have to sort of crawl through a broken fence? Or? Yeah, there's, um, you have to, you have to cross a ruined bridge to get to it, which has these huge holes in it, yeah. or you have to navigate around um, the south of the site. Parts of the site are patrolled by security, uh, which are to do with the, the modern munitions element. Um, and you know, the site's, a, the site's quite dangerous in some ways. There's um, part of it's called the Black Powder, 
black powder forest because they used to produce black powder there. And trains used to run through that forest and quite often, you know, munitions would fall off the train so that the, uh, the forester is full of unexploded ordnance, you know, so I have to be quite careful when I, when I go out there. So anyone listening to this, I don't recommend you kind of go <laughs> disclaimer and when when this work does get exhibited will you combine it will it be accompanied by text and and is that is that text that you're writing yourself or are you still working that out um i think it'll just be um, a collaborative text um yeah i'm working with leslie um um who's a um a professor of archaeology at Birkbeck, and she um she'll be writing a text about you know interpretations of the site and the importance of it um, but I'll also be writing about my own experiences um, of working there and, you know, just some of, you know, some of the issues around the conservation of it. Because ironically, this, this site, which is, you know, this environmental haven is now being destroyed by uh, land landowners who are now uh, quarrying it for sand. Um, and even though they're, even though they're quarrying the site for sand and, you know, their, their digger has, you know, there's been several explosions when it's hit, you know, munitions. They're still, you know, they're taking, you know, millions of tons of sand from the site and effectively destroying, you know, this um, huge environmental uh, resource. And I spoke to, I actually wrote to uh, George Monbiot about this and, you know, he expressed his, uh, you know, um, his support of trying to raise awareness of the project. And I've written again to um, McFarlane about this because mm -hmm. uh, he was kind of tangentially involved with the St Kilda book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of support to kind of, help preserve these places you know um which you know we don't often think about as being important these kind of wildlife havens yeah sure mm. and to bring things back to the present a bit mm -hmm. oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 i mean it's like i always like in awe of how much you're you're kind of working on at one time alex and some of these projects are so interesting and uh, and also it's not as if you kind of you sort of throw yourself into these places and stay for a month and then leave again. You're, you're going back to places time and time again. And some of this, some of this work is made over long periods of time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very rare that I've done, um, I've, I've done the kind of uh, two month um, parachute and thing. I did that with the Fair Islands. That's the next book, which is where, um, you know, I spent a couple of months uh, living there and working with local people. Um, but for the most part, my approach is it's very slow. Um, and it's funny in a way because you, you know, as an artist or, you know, a photographer, you, your interests change. And, you know, I, I find I, I get stuck in these projects which last a decade. <laughs> and, you know, your interests come and go, they, and you, your influences change. And, you know, like for the St. Kilda book, for example, you know, this, that took um, five or six years to come out. And, um, you know, it's, it's done you know, using an old camera which belonged to Faye Godwin and very black and white documentary um, and style. And um, it's not something I do today, you know, but then it's, it's current for people. So when they see what you're, when you bring out a book like that, they think that's where you're at with your work. Mm. Um, so there's kind of interesting tensions there. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much into the slow approach to photography. <laughs> um, <laughs> And some of that's life, you know, I've, I've had to work jobs and, you know, I, um, I've got to kind of work it around um, um, kind of my work life and my home life. Mm -hmm. And so it can be circumstance based or sometimes it's just because, you know, I enjoy reflection um, 
I mean, this fairways book, I've not taken any images in the Fair Islands for about four years. And uh, I kind of just sit on the images and then come back to them with fresh eyes a couple of years later, you know, rather than just sticking them on Instagram the day after I take them. You know, I like to sort of think, well, maybe what's, what's the best approach to, to kind of contextualizing the work I've made? You know, how do you, how do you present it to the world? You know, so. Sure. Yeah. And what about, what about today in this moment of the pandemic? What does, what should photographers be doing? What can we do with photography or what can it do for us? Have you, have you thought much about that? Yeah, um, I mean, it's been so powerful seeing some of the images which have been coming out just in the last week. Um, not really to do with the pandemic, more to do with um, everything which has happened and yeah. George Floyd's death. And um, the kind of competing narratives which come out and, you know, I think, you know, if, in terms of the pandemic, people talk a lot about images of empty streets, you know, and yeah, there's lots of that, you know, endless images of, you know, um, places emptied of people. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think of, you know, the effects of this going, you know, through the next 20, 30 years. I mean, there's, you know, if reports, you know, the government are saying 40,000 people have died, but we have, you know, a discrepancy between now and last year of 60,000. You know, that's 40,000 people who are not joining people for Christmas, their families for Christmas dinner, or, you know, those are absences of people, you know, and how, how do you get your head around that? I mean, how do you, how do you even, you know, try to, to broach something so massive? And yeah, I see a lot of people doing projects to do with, with this. And it's something that I just can't do. It's just, you know, it's mentally and emotionally exhausting. You know, I've, I've not taken any pictures to do with, with the pandemic because I just, you know, between that and, you know, looking after my daughter, I just don't have the, I don't have the space for that really, really. And it's, it's so upsetting, but you know, what, what can photography do? Um, you know, for those who are, you know, who are stronger than me, um, I think it's, it's so important right now to, to, to challenge the narratives of our government, you know, who have mismanaged this. It's important to challenge what is basically fascism in America just now with the, um, you know, the, the launching of, uh, these soldiers onto crowds, you know, the, these kind of um, very insidious um, uh, and racist kind of, um, kind of um, it's kind of hard to find the words, you know, I'm just so angry about it all. <laughs> but I, I think it's important for photographers to try and get images out there which can't be manipulated, sure. you know, by counter, counter narratives. I mean, the one I can think about just in the last few days alone, you know, is uh, there's an image of uh, Trump, you know, carrying a Bible mm. upside down, you know, with his, uh, his uh, photo shoot, you know, which he did, which has mm. run alongside images of Hitler, of all people, you know, holding a Bible. Sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a crude comparison, um, uh, but one, you know, which is effective. Um, but in the last, you know, couple of days, you know, people have looked at that original picture of Hitler and he wasn't holding a Bible in the original photograph. Now, what makes that image important, I suppose, in a way is that that's now been twisted by, you know, like far-right and alt-right commentators that nothing that the, you know, the, the left brings out can be trusted, you know, because you have these kind of memes which go out, which can be challenged, you know, and it's uh 
yeah, I just I see endless things like that going out and just, you know, I just wish people just put the documentary stuff out without, you know, these kind of strange, uh, strange wee workings of history to suit their own narratives. Yeah. And uh, yeah, sure. I think as photographers, we need to be very strong, you know, about that. And yeah, I mean, and some of the most powerful images, of course, in the last couple of days, you know, for me, you know, from this country are of, you know, the massive queues in Parliament, you know, the kind of farcical nature. Um, and, you know, um, Rhys Mogg and so on have tried to shut down images of this farce in Westminster as people queue up, you know, um, but he, he's not been successful, you know, those, those images have gone out into the world and they've shown what, you know, this government is, how it's trying to hijack democracy for its own ends. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> it's, no, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think one. I think one of the things you're you're alluding to is perhaps that at this time, during the pandemic and this extraordinary time in history, where it feels like the civil rights movement has, is having to start up all over again. That it's it's forty, fifty years ago, all over again, and all yeah. these um, perhaps because of the pandemic um, has brought these these things into focus. These issues that have never actually gone away, but have been. Um, yeah, I think they've always out of yeah. sight somehow. But it, but these things are teaching us to, perhaps all of us to read read photographs slightly differently. Perhaps mm. that's one small thing in relating to, you know, the, the images that we're looking at. Yeah, I mean the days of you know um, images of people putting flowers and the rifles of soldiers in Vietnam. You know, I've I've seen you know people trying to recreate images like that. You know, there's one image of a yeah. protester or in front of you know a wall of um wall of police or you know the images of um you know uh, police putting their riot shields down you know they they're simple but effective images um but it's the other things it's the you know governments putting things out which you know on the face of it tell one story but you know people have, hopefully people you know are starting to question a lot more these kind of things mm. um yeah god it feels it feels like we're living in an adam curtis you know documentary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a time. It's definitely not a time for sort of cynical photography, I think. No, I'd say not. I mean, another thing. Yeah. Cynicism in photography, you know, at the moment. Um, I think the only thing I've seen like that is the whole, you know, Martin Parr face mask outrage in the last couple of days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, cynical acts like that by established photographers, you know, that's you know that should be objected to across the board and you know yeah cynical manipulations of images um by news services yeah that's mm. again something that we really need to keep questioning and keep um challenging you know and it's hard because you know in the 24-hour news cycle you know you get exhausted you know and we're all exhausted just now with with lockdown so you know we just need to keep finding these reserves of energy you know to keep yeah. going forward and speaking of which where do you what what kind of what what artworks or books or what are you kind of reading at the moment or watching or listening to and, and are there things that you've kind of gone back to or or things that you've discovered that you would recommend to people yeah um um a bit lighter i suppose is uh, <laughs> yeah, i've kind of gone back to you know just in day-to-day -day life previously before all this um you know i'd be buying magazines but never really getting the chance to read them so you know, I've, I've really loved um, going through old copies of Art North, which is a really great magazine, uh, which kind of shares work from Northern Europe, uh, 
um, across the fields, which um, is worth checking out. Um, they also have a website called Project Room 2020, which has online exhibitions, which are really worth, um, and it's all free, you know, quite a wide variety of different art forms. Um, Bookwise um, kind of returned to um, Neil Gunn's work, like Highland River. Oh yeah. yeah. These kind of very meditative uh, kind of uh, works on landscape and they're just, you know, it's just fantastic escapism, you know, um, from what I do every day. Cause you know, um, my life kind of goes between reading books on cultural trauma to reading uh, Maisie, Maisie Mouse uh, and, uh, you know, so it's kind of, it's a bit, you know, I'm sort of between, you know, in my, my downtime, I'm reading books, which are kind of just kind of slow, slow books about um, people, you know, living up north, you know, the, um, I still keep meaning to read Nan Shepherd's uh, Quarry Wood book, um, try to think what else. Art-wise, um, yeah, I've gone right back to, you know, the stuff which got me into photography at the very start, um, which isn't photographers, actually. I've, I've gone back to I've got a pile of books on Anselm Kiefer, so going back to his really early photographic work. Um, been enjoying Dara McGrath's new book, uh, which is on chemical weapons testing. So again, back to the kind of heavy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ragnar Axelson's documentary work, I've been kind of dipping in and out of that again. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just at the moment, I just feel I just don't have a lot of space, like to to take on, you know, lots of new work. So I think I'm sort of retreating back into to older stuff just now, just purely yeah. out of comfort, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I imagine a lot of people are. Have you read Out of Interest, mm-hmm. The Peregrine by J. A. Baker? No, I've not. No, uh, no. I've just been reading that as as a you know a kind of slow book in fact the the forward is by robert mcfarlane it's a book from the mid early to mid 60s i think first published and um i've been meaning to read it for for years but i finally got around to but it's a yes something to dip in and out of and a and a just a a lovely book to kind of escape into the the nan the nan shepherd book you mentioned is that um recently been published is that old writing of hers that's been published recently or is it um she i think everyone knows the living mountain um but no she she wrote a series of other books and i think they've been around for a while now Um, right that can i wish i could like grab it here but um i think it might be canongate who brought it out right um, no i think she's got another again i'm sure someone will correct me but i think there's three three other books um and yeah i just keep meaning to get into them Another book I've been reading actually is, um, is lovely. It's by um, Tim Eacott and it's called The Land of Maybe. And uh, it's all about his, he spent a year um, in the Faroe Islands just trying to get past, you know, the kind of perceptions of the island. And it's just very, very um, intertwines kind of history and modern life on the islands. And it's not this, it's not romantic and it's not just kind of, um, yeah, just very beautifully written. I'd, I'd uh, recommend that. Yeah. yeah and what what's next for you are you um well obviously we're we're very keen to get your work for as part of projects 20 up at stills as soon as we can mm-hmm. um you've talked about the various things on hold but uh-huh. what are you are you do you feel like you're sort of waiting at the moment or um i think i've just got i'm just sort of trying to power through everything at the moment which you know yeah kind of um it's 
works some days and work does not work at all other days. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I've got another kind of um, two years of this doctorate. So um, um, what I'm really looking forward to is getting back into the studio and doing some printmaking. Um, that's kind of, I think, where my real passion is at the moment. I, um, I spent, spent about a couple of weeks in Japan last year um, climbing a mountain, unsurprisingly. <laughs> and, um, but I did spend some time in Tokyo doing um, traditional woodblock printing. And I think once these current projects are done, um, yeah, I, I don't have, I think I just want to sort of dive into printmaking for a couple of years and uh, see where that goes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm really fired up about. I've got all the kind of tools here in the house, uh, having a, a small child, you know, doesn't really allow for me to you know, get really, really into that at the moment. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm fired up about that. And, um, yeah, just getting out and meeting people again. That's, <laughs> that would be the nice thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Just out of interest, will you be going back to Japan or did you, did you finish the work you were making there for that project? Um, I would love, yeah, I, I'm going out to Australia, hopefully, <laughs> um, next year. And uh, my wife and I are hoping to get out to Japan. Um, it was kind of inspired by, again, this is a really beautiful book. Um, it's called 100 Mountains of Japan. And it's by Fukada. And it's this, um, it's, it's not like a gazette of mountains. It's this um, book which tells the kind of cultural and um, everything from art, artists and poets Mm. Um, these kind of cultural histories of mountains they're almost like portraits of mountains and you know years ago I was really drawn to one mountain in particular which is called Mount Yari or Yari Gatake and it's um, it's a three-day you know hike in and out to the top and back and I sort of viewed it as a pilgrimage to kind of go and climb this thing and I was lucky to get support from the Daiwa Foundation to do that but um, when I was in Japan I planned to climb a few other mountains but there's some really terrible weather. So I've got unfinished business with Japan. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's a few that I really, um, I really need to get back, back there and up. So yeah, that's um, definitely one I hope we can do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Um, it's you. been really good to talk to you. I really appreciate the time. And um, yeah, good luck with, with everything you've got going on and really look forward to getting your work here at Stills. Thank you. It's a, a big honor for me to show it still. So thank you. Yeah, so much. great. We look forward to it. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been great. Take care and, and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, take care. Okay. Bye bye. Goodbye.